Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsinized Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review, Governor Evers enacts new voting maps, marking a new era of Wisconsin politics. Coming up, we break down what this means for upcoming elections. Plus, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin files a new lawsuit targeting abortion rights. And Madison businessman Eric Hubdy officially enters the U.S. Senate race. All that and more on Rewind, your week in review for February 23rd. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Jerry, we begin this morning with breaking news from WizPolitics uh, regarding allegations against Donald Trump's fundraising campaign and a Republican Assemblywoman, Janelle Branchin. So this is what you reported this morning, is that the state election, excuse me, Ethics Commission alleges the Trump's joint fundraising committee and Representative Branchin schemed to evade campaign finance limits as part of an effort that steered at least $40,000 into the 2022 primary challenge of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. And that's according to records that you obtained this morning. And Jared, this could, you know, really ignite a new investigation. Yeah. So what happens now is these uh, referrals go to local district attorneys to look into it. And basically what the commission is alleging is that there was this effort that was undertaken by Adam Steen and others because people want to give him more than $1,000, which is the contribution limit for an individual in the assembly. He told them, give the money to the Langley County GOP. They will then funnel it to me. Now, to identify these donations, they write the number 63 in the memo line of the check. 63 is the district Robin Voss represents. That was a signal to the parties when they received the money, that's going to go toward Adam Steen. In fact, if you go look at the records from the county parties, one actually earmarked on a donation from Donald J. Trump's uh, fundraising arm, this is to go to Langley County GOP for Adam Steen's writing campaign. Quite interesting. So there's that effort. Then there's the Donald J. Trump Save America Joint Fundraising Committee. That committee is accused of conspiring to send 5,000 bucks each to the Langlade, Chippewa County, and uh, another county party to funnel that money to Adam Steen as well. The outtake from this is they're alleged to have broken a felony, committed a felony. Uh, it's a class I, six months in jail, $1,000 fine, which isn't a huge penalty, but for someone like Janelle Branchin, if you are convicted of that, you cannot be in state office as a felon. So this is her career on the line, essentially. Now, the story's still developing, but we're looking into what's going on. But the commission met this week, referred these to uh, local DAs. Now these DAs have 40 days to basically take action. They then, if they haven't resolved it in the 40 days, have 30 days to kind of, eat, every 30 days, do an update. If there's no action in 60 days, the commission has the option to then send us a DOJ. Uh, note, the first 40-day update would come out right before Wisconsin's presidential primary, April 2nd. Wow, so a lot of further implications that could possibly happen with this and definitely something we'll be keeping an eye on. All right, let's move on to another big story this week. If we're going to go back in order now to Monday when Governor Tony Evers signed new voting maps into law. They were the ones that he drew and Republicans passed uh, last week. So he signed them uh, himself at the state capitol, and these would be in place for the November election, which marks a significant shift in the political landscape here in the battleground state. Now, under Evers' maps, which many people should 
should know by now, Democrats now have the ability to drastically reduce Republicans' legislative majority that they've maintained in both houses since 2011, so for more than a decade. Now, this also comes as majority of Democrats voted against Evers maps. Now, some arguments over that was that there was this provision in the bill that wouldn't enact the maps until November. Therefore, there's these big questions about what about recall attempts? What about special elections? Uh, and some Democrats felt like they were maybe tricked. Some also feared this could also possibly lead to another federal challenge. Well, it seemed like a lot of those concerns eased after the governor signed these maps. Uh, let's hear from the governor himself talk about that. And ultimately, he kind of talked about why he decided to, to sign these, even though a lot of members in his own party uh, didn't. Wisconsin is not a red state. It is not a blue state. Wisconsin is a purple state. And I believe our maps should reflect, reflect that basic fact. To me, the decision to enact these maps boils down to this. I made a promise to the people of Wisconsin that I would always try to do the right thing. And keeping that promise, to me, matters most, even if members of my own party disagree with me. So, of course, big story this week. We're going to dive into more about competitive districts, what's on the line going forward. But, you know, we're hearing throughout this week, JR, as we talk to lawmakers, some are already saying, hey, I might move. I, you know, I got to reevaluate. I got to talk to your family. It's a lot of uh, incumbents that are going to be paired against one another. They're going to have to figure, figure out what they're going to do in their future. So, huge question for a lot of them is, when do I have to live in the district? So, Joan Balwig, for example, we're looking for Marcus Ann. She's in the 14th Senate District. That district has been basically moved way to the west and has become a 53-ish percent Democratic seat. Hers was a pretty Republican one. So one, she'd have to live in that district when she was representing it. So the question is, when do you have to live there? Like, when you run? Like, state law says you have to be an elector of the state for one year and live in the district at the day you assume the office. But that really hasn't been explored in the courts lately. So a couple of lawmakers talked to her like, well, I want to know, when do I have to live there? What's going on? Mm -hmm. Rob Coles up in the 2nd District. So he was joining the 30th with two other Republicans. Eric Wimberger is the incumbent in that seat. Coles told me he's going to move to the 2nd District because that area west of Green Bay has been a huge part of his seat. He represents in 1987. So he's like, I'm going to move there, but when do I have to move, JR? That's a mm -hmm. question for him. So right. then you have people in odd-numbered districts. Andre Jacques in the 1st, who's looking for him for Congress. Uh, Jesse James in the 23rd, Howard Markline the 17th, Romaine Quinn the 25th. So I'll keep this slow, but Andre is drawn into the second. The theory is, according to a 1983 Attorney General's opinion, is that if you, are, you win a district and the lines change during your term, you hold that seat for the rest of your term. So in theory then, under that theory, Andre Jacques is the first state senator until at least 2026. Now follow this. Howard Markline, the 17th Senate District Senator, was drawn into the 14th, which is on the ballot this fall. So in theory, again, he could rep the 17th until 2026, but then what does he do? Up north, Jesse James, Republican from Altoona, was drawn into a district with Jeff Smith, a Democrat from Brunswick. They're both odd-numbered districts, so they're in the 31st, okay, not for two years. Romaine Quinn, like the 25th in 2022, was drawn into the 23rd, which is Jesse James's seat. Again, what will Romaine Quinn do? I talked to Romaine, he said, I intend to fill out the rest of my term in the seat, what about 2026? That's a long way away. Right. So this is, underscores like the challenge for these guys. Plus, oh, by um, you bought a house recently. Uh, the market is not great right oh, now for buying a, a house. That's exactly what I thought about during this whole thing. Yeah. Interest mm -hmm. rates are a little high right now. Right. Um, that complicates things. Oh, by the way, it's a job that pays $58,000 a year. 
59? Right. Like and how you, much do you want it? And you talked about Senator Jesse James. I, I asked him because I was talking about a, a, we're, we're going to get to his bill that passed uh, the floor on the floor this week, but he just straight up said, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, and I, you know, you could feel it. He's like, I have conversations with my family. I'm going to be talking to my wife. I know happy, happy life, happy wife, you know, so it's a lot of people are kind of really reevaluating their political futures. But for some lawmakers, too, they're, they just feel like kind of punched in the face. <laughs> they, they really want to keep this job and maintain it. But it's going to be a tough hurdle. Um, let's pull up a, an assembly map ana- analysis uh, that uh, WizPolitics did, too, talking about some of the most competitive districts. Now we're going to shift on to the assembly. Um, not going to dive into every number here, but you can see on your screen that the red districts, those are kind of lean, of course, Republican. The blue ones, lean, Democrat. And then there's some really toss-up ones with the purple districts there that are kind of just any, you know, anyone can grab. That's Assembly District 89, Assembly District 60. One And this, once again, just puts into perspective of how there's going to be a pretty big shift here. So here's a big picture. Um, using results from 2022, and I caution anybody home, like this is top of the ticket, like a benchmark. This is not like this seat will go Democratic sure. or no matter what. Mm-hmm. But using those numbers from 2022, top of the ticket, there are 47 Republican seats that were 55% GOP or better in 2022. There are 41 Democratic seats, 55% or better. So typically, those are not competitive seats. Caveat is one of those Democratic seats that's 55% or better is represented by uh, Todd Novak of Dodgeville, Republican, who has run above the top of the ticket in the before this past election. So, again, not a done deal, but that's a good benchmark. There are these 11 seats that are truly kind of in play. Two of them, 50-50, almost 50-50 with the 2022 numbers. Others, you know, I think five lean Republican, four lean Democratic. Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen this fall? Top of the ticket. Donald Trump v. Joe Biden, we think right now, right? How does that go? If it's a 50-50 race, our policy has been nationalized. It maybe reinforces those natures of those districts. But if Donald Trump loses Wisconsin by four points or Joe Biden loses by four points, all bets are off. Now, there's that candidate recruitment. So Democrats, there aren't, haven't been many of them in the legislature lately, right? They're in basically super minorities in the Senate and almost in the Assembly. How do they find that number of quality people to run in seats? That's going to be an issue for them. Money shouldn't be an issue for the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. Uh, ben Wilker has been a fundraising machine the time he's been there. That should be fine. Message. What are they going to talk about? Is it going to be about abortion this fall, immigration, taxes, the economy? What's going to drive this race this fall impact a lot of things? And it always comes down to finding people who want to run for office. Of course, they're out there. There's people in county, local governments uh, that you can tap. But other than that, we're in a very tough political environment that not too many people are interested in having this job. So that's also something to watch for when it comes to recruitment. Now, you just mentioned the issue of abortion, and it looks like the issue is going to continue to be a talker now that Planned Parenthood signed a <coughs> new lawsuit uh, that, or filed, excuse me, a new lawsuit this week with the state Supreme Court. And asking it to recognize the state constitution's right to bodily anatomy, including abortion. So the organization argues that the rights declared in the state constitution when it relates to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness essentially include the right to determine what one does with one's own body, including whether and when to have a child. Of course, JR, this comes as we already have an ongoing lawsuit related to our abortion laws. That, of course, is still in the lower courts. That's the one 
one that Attorney General Josh Call filed, and it's seeking to overturn the 1849 abor abortion ban. We also knew earlier this week uh, a Sheboygan County District Attorney, Joel Ormansky, who's involved in that case, uh, asked the Supreme Court, uh, he appealed, asking the state Supreme Court to decide whether that 1849 law does actually outlaw abortions because it comes after the Dane County judge in December ruled that it doesn't apply to the procedure. So this is once again another lawsuit in a sense too also they're trying to keep the issue top of mind of voters because we could also see the state supreme court uh, resolve this other case maybe fairly soon who knows so here's the difference the suit out of dane county that ermanski asked the court to take this week that's about a statutory interpretation okay does 1849 law, law apply to abortion this new filing from Planned Parenthood is a constitutional question. Is there a right to an abortion in the state constitution, much like what the Supreme Court found in 1973 in Roe v. Wade, okay? They're looking for their version of Roe v. Wade in Wisconsin. If they are successful with this constitutional question, Planned Parenthood says, it could then look at existing restrictions in Wisconsin and challenge them. Right now, for example, the ban is after 20 weeks of pregnancy. There is a parental consent law for minors. There's a 24-hour waiting period. If you win this lawsuit with the state Supreme Court, you could then go back and challenge those other restrictions and say, do they comply with this new interpreted right state constitution? The, the stakes are huge in that case. And I should note, the Planned Parenthood asked the court to decide the case before the call lawsuit or basically concurrently to it. Right, and attorneys from Planned Parenthood I spoke to, uh, also they say this is essentially this latest lawsuit is putting more guardrails in place too because you kind of hinted too, right? Um, the future legislatures uh, might try to keep changing our abortion laws and they think this would kind of have more guardrails, safeguards in place going forward. All right, let's move on to tax cuts. As right now, a GOP tax package is sitting on Governor Tony Evers' desk. Now, he's been asked many times about this, but the latest he was asked about it was when he was during an event in Kenosha. Um, CBS 58 asked him, are you going to sign any of the four bills that are sitting on his desk? And he said, I'm sure we'll be signing some, but not all. This isn't surprising, Jerry. We've been talking about this on the, on the show for a few weeks now because the child care tax credit that would increase tax credits uh, to new parents, that is the most likely one he's going to sign. Why? Because it received bipartisan support on the floor. Whereas the key centerpiece of this tax package um, that would expand the second income tax bracket to include more middle income earners, that one I'm getting maybe likely a veto. Why? Because it is very similar to tax cuts that Republicans have sent in the past, and his big argument is that it still is you know, giving the top earners a big tax cut compared to the middle class. Um, you know, remains to be seen. That's just kind of the outlook of it right now. Um, there's also, of course, the bill that would cut retirement income. Maybe he signs that. There's also another one um, that is uh, dealing with uh, newly married couples would also increase tax credits as well. So uh, another thing about the child care credit, not that expensive. So you leave that $3.25 billion surplus for the next budget largely intact, which gives 20 years and a foundation for his next budget. All right, moving on because it's a 
Not a slow week in Wisconsin politics. We're now going to recap uh, some of the big ticket items that the Senate and Assembly uh, took up this week. We're going to start with the Senate and in regards to Governor Evers' appointees because, no surprise, more of them were rejected. We're going to start with, of course, the Natural Resources Board who was appointed, Todd Ames. He was rejected. And then you have those three uh, uh, females who were appointed to the UW Hospitals and Clinic Authority Board. All of them uh, were rejected as well. Before we dive into this, JR, and kind of your tracking of how many appointments this is right now. Let's just hear from both sides as it almost is, you know, kind of the same song and dance that we're hearing from Democrats that, you know, this is in their view ridiculous that every time the governor appoints someone, someone is rejected regardless of what they've done in their past. Meanwhile, Republicans maintain, hey, if you got ties to your past, we're going to find it. Let's take a listen. Not only is the Republican majority continuing to reject extraordinarily qualified appointees like Todd Ames, and like the four dedicated and experienced NRB appointees that this majority rejected last October, the majority continues to refuse to confirm NRB appointees that you support. I'm extremely disappointed with the continued partisan gridlock being manufactured by my Republican colleagues. It is increasingly clear that the majority party will only vote to confirm appointees who espouse Republican orthodoxy, even when there is a Democratic governor appointing them. When you have someone who is power hungry at the DNR and does everything in his power to hurt the aquaculture industry in this state and basically sits back and says, well, you guys don't have the power I do. Yes, we have liberal leanings and we have conservative leanings, but these people have to work. We're not a blue state. We're not a red state. We're a purple state. So we are asking him to send us appointees who are willing to work with all. So their lawmakers were talking about Ames, who is now the fifth pick that it was uh, nominated by Governor Tony Evers to serve on the DNR board that has now been shot by shot down by GOP lawmakers in just a span of four months. So the argument from, Dem- from Republicans is, look, send less partisan people to mm-hmm. us. So Todd uh, tweeted something in 2022, I won't repeat on the air, it's a family show, but he used a very unkind word to talk about Republicans and those on Fox News that's not going to sit well with Republicans. We've already seen that mean tweets are not going to get you very far in the state Senate with other appointees. With the three of the clinic board, you know, two are former Democrats, mm-hmm. served in office, one's a union, former union official. You know, Barb Lawton was really interesting one because here's a former lieutenant governor, eight years in that office. She's got experience both in the private sector and public with health care. So why was she rejected? I asked about that a lot this week. And the answer I got was there's one concerns that Evers is appointing people to this board who are more partisan in nature, that it should be a nonpartisan board, period. And two, there's Republicans un- there are Republicans unhappy about the unionization efforts of nurses at UW and that this mm-hmm. is associated with that. Now, the governor, in kind of a stick it in the eye move, quickly appointed three new people, a union official, and two former Democratic lawmakers, basically <laughs> saying, you know, right back at you kind of thing. So this is now 14 executive branch appointees rejected since Evers took office. Now that includes uh, an appointment he made to the Elections Commission, who was recommended by Democratic lawmakers, and a DAT cap appointment by his his administration. By comparison, there were four executive branch appointees rejected by the Senate in the previous four decades. It shows you it's changed, and one thing to keep in mind, I had an aide this week tell me, look, there are a few Republicans left in the Senate who were in the minority, and few aides who remember what it was like. This is going to bite us in the butt someday, possibly, if there's a democratically controlled state senate, which is now possible with the map that we have, 
the Republican governor. All right, might come back to haunt them. All right, let's move on to other things that the Senate passed this week. Just going to highlight them real quick. Of course, it was the final action on that $2.1 billion tax package that we just talked about. Proposals also to strip the governor's uh, powers to fill vacancies without Senate confirmation and would change the criteria for the state's Amber Alert system to include more children. That was a bipartisan bill that is now going to be arriving on Governor Tony Evers' desk and was proposed in wake of a five-year-old uh, who died in Milwaukee and a 10-year-old girl uh, from Chippewa Falls. Both children, unfortunately, did not fit the certain criteria to issue those Amber Alerts. So this bill now would start, you know, pinging more people's cell phones if they're in that area in hopes to at least have more eyes uh, around and to avoid uh, some of these tragic deaths that we've seen in Wisconsin. All right, let's move on to the assembly this week. Of course, they took up about a little over 90 bills, I want to say, yesterday and a lot of amendments. Um, but we're just going to highlight some of the bills that they did through this week. One includes overhauling the funding system for the state's private school voucher program. That was a little bit controversial. Um, Also a lot of task force bills that we saw created over the past two years uh, finally getting passage. Some of them deal with truancy. Um, One would include holding students back if they miss 30 days of school. Then we had uh, bills from the obesity task force. One would include requiring a minimum of three hours of physical activity per week. And we saw another constitutional amendment that would prohibit the partial veto powers uh, from the governor uh, and not allow him to increase taxes or fees with his veto pen. Of course, this was authored uh, not too long after Governor Evers got very uh, uh, creative with his veto pen in the past budget to expand school funding over the next 400 years. All right, moving on to another topic of debate that actually wasn't on the calendar, but a lot of people are talking about this uh, one uh, because it deals with allowing clerks to process absentee ballots the day before election. Not count them, but we're talking about opening up ballot absentee ballot envelopes to then feed them in the machine on election day. Also checking if someone didn't write their zip code or a witness didn't sign it, which for a very long time clerks have asked for this. It's been a big issue for Milwaukee officials who've been on board with this, but we've learned over the past five or six days that the bill is likely dead. Now, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu first went on the record on Sunday on a WISN um, upfront show saying that he doesn't believe he has the votes, it's still in committee, so then I called Senator Dan Canodal, who's the chairman of that committee, and say, why don't you exec it out? Um, he has concerns that Milwaukee already has a staffing problem, is what he told me, So, and he is kind of in the lane of a lot of conservatives who believe, well, Milwaukee should almost, what they say is should get their act together. They shouldn't need an extra day to do this. Well, there are mechanisms, uh, JR, where, you know, top Republicans, including Senator Lemahieu, can take bills out of committee and get creative with it. I asked him about that yesterday. Um, he, he didn't really explain why he wouldn't do that. He actually told me the ways he could actually take the bill out of committee and then walked away. So um, didn't really get to hear more from him. Um, but a lot of people uh, have been urging the Senate to act on this, including Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, other top Republicans in the Assembly, you know, Milwaukee leaders, the governor today, uh, or not today, excuse me, earlier this week, criticized Republicans for not sending him this bill. So unfortunately, when we thought it could be the year, JR, it might not be like it. So there are two things driving this, okay? Number one, there is a strain of the Republican Party that believes that, especially the base, that if you allow early processing, there will be a tally taken in places like Milwaukee that will then leak out and send a message to Democrats, you need to pick up the pace in Ward A, B, and C on Election Day, and that will create disadvantage for Republicans. Now, the bill says you can't, rele- you can't count, mm-hmm. you can just process, but that's 
the theory. The second thing is there are Republican senators who like this bill, who want to get it done. They don't want to deal with that strain of the Republican Party back home and go to Lincoln Day dinners and hear you guys are trying to create fraud. It is not worth the burn they get at these events if they back it. So yes, if, if Devin put it on the floor, you get 17 votes, but not just with Republicans. They do not want to go the, that rule of 17 we talk about sometimes. Mm -hmm. 17 GOP votes to pass anything. They break it now and then when they want to. But this is one they just don't feel like breaking because it's not worth, again, not worth the headache back home. And if you would put it on the floor, it's very likely it would pass because Democrats would join him in voting for it. Um, also, a lot of people are telling me too. Well, you know, the blame. I know you said when they go back to their, you know, these parties, these fundraiser events, they're going to get, you know, criticized. Well, on the other hand, I think they're also going to get criticized possibly if Milwaukee is taking till 12, 1 a.m., 3 a.m., which was the case back in 2020, because they have thousands, tens and thousands of absentee ballots that they need to get through. So, if you really wanted the results to come a little bit earlier, that's the you know the warning from Milwaukee election officials saying, "Hey, we think we could be done well before 10, 11 p.m." That's specifically mm -hmm. from Claire Woodall Vogue, who is the Milwaukee uh, clerk there, executive director of the Milwaukee Elections Commission. All right, let's move on to another election-related story, as it is now official that Tammy Baldwin has a serious contender, and that is Madison businessman Eric Hovde. He had a launch uh, party fundraising event here in Madison, and Hovde, of course, is the first Republican to formally challenge—I would say serious challenge. Uh, to Senator Baldwin. Why he decided to run and some of his talking points, let's hear from him and Senator Baldwin reacting to him getting into the race. We need economic competency brought to Washington, D.C. And we have to stop driving ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. We have to create policies that expand our middle class and our working class. We have to put the interests of innocent people and victims before criminals. We have to secure our southern border. Because of where my country is, because of my love for my country, I have decided to run for the U.S. Senate. You know, Mitch McConnell got uh, his, his best recruit. A uh, California bank owner is a uh, multimillionaire is going to enter the race. And it seems to be the, the playbook these days. All right. So we already know that there's some other Republicans mulling a run. That's Franklin businessman Scott Mayer and maybe former Milwaukee uh, uh, sheriff, excuse me, David Clark. Those remain to be seen, but this is kind of getting the ball rolling here. So look, uh, we knew Hubby was getting in. I, I got the impression last week the NRSC, the National Republican Central Committee, kind of pushed out that news he was going to get in because mm -hmm. they're tired of waiting for him. So his rollout this week felt like it was like, okay, maybe quicker than they were expecting because the news is already out. So we've talked about it before. It's a guy who is wealthy, can put some money in the campaign to get it going. He's got a bank in California. Will that come back to bite him in Wisconsin? How will the top of the ticket do between Biden and Trump if they're the nominees? That's going to impact the Senate race. Can Tammy Baldwin, again, run above the top of the ticket? Is she vulnerable? We've talked about that before. The message that I think maybe is under the radar this week is Republicans want Scott Mayer to stay out. Uh, as Hovde announced, NRSC endorsed Hovde. Um, Americans for Prosperity Action, which does door knocking, lit, ads, mm -hmm. endorsed Hovde. Like, it's a message of, we don't want you, Scott. Now, the issue is Scott Mayer has a lot of big checkbook as well. So will he decide he wants to get into this race? 
that could complicate things because the last thing Republicans want is a contested primary right. and then bloodies up the nominee and then makes it easier for Baldwin re-election. All right, let's get to the stock picks uh, real quick. Rising this week is Cavalier Johnson, who cruised on Tuesday in his primary election. He was not in any danger, but when you get 86% in your primary, it tells you you're doing all right. Yeah. All right. And we're going to uh, quickly go to mix this week. Is Senate President Chris Campaga that deals with a utilities bill that's been very controversial? So it's called right of first refusal. It gives existing utilities with transmission lines the first shot at getting work, some $2 billion in work, to build new lines and connect to their existing equipment. Uh, it is the most lobbied bill by far during the second half of 2023. There are lots of people involved. Capion this week took a move to try and basically kill the bill. Mm -hmm. So typically, when a bill comes from the Assembly of the Senate, the president has the sole authority to sign a bill committee, it goes to Senate org, which basically means it's available for scheduling. Instead, Capion put it into another committee, and not the committee that the Senate version passed four to one, that's uh, that chaired by the co-author of the bill. He put it in Rob Cole's committee, uh, Chair of Natural Resources. Cole's is not a huge fan of this bill. If it's in committee, you need a two-thirds vote to pull it out to the floor. That makes a roadblock to getting the floor and getting passage. Now, Cappy has done this stuff before. Remember back in the alcohol discussion? Mm -hmm. He ruled Devin use amendment non-germane. I've never seen a less synchronized Senate president and Senate Major leader in my entire two-plus decades of covering the Senate. The big question going forward is, what happens after November when there are new leadership elections? And then two, this, this body next year, they're going to lose seats, most likely. I mean, it, barring Biden, like cratering, sure. all that kind of stuff, they're not going to be at 22. If they're at 19, let's say, Steve Noss votes no on everything. Chris Cabby votes no on most things. You can't lose anybody else in any bill to get anything done. How are they going to pass a budget with that caucus if this is how they operate on bill? Like somebody said, we have a supermajority JR. And we are using dem votes to pass bills sometimes. That's right. not a great sign. That's wild. Yep. All right. Let's get to falling and fee schedule. So look, this is basically imposing a cap on the procedure, medical procedures and the workers' compensation program. There has been a push for a decade by the business community to put this in place. The, the Workers' Comp Advisory Council did an interesting thing this, this, this month. They proposed two bills. One has most of the changes to the workers' comp program they want to see. It's a, a council of management and labor. They basically reached a good deal on everything. They did a second bill, the fee schedule, and expanding coverage for PTSD for first responders. Lawmakers were not happy they took this poison pill of the fee schedule and paired it with something popular like PTSD expansion. Mm -hmm. So this council has not only, again, missed on a fee schedule, which this community wants, healthcare does not, but also really torqued off a bunch of lawmakers who were like, this put us in a bad spot. Not a great look. All right. Well, that will do it for a very slow week in politics, <laughs> of course, kidding. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. This program was brought to you from the Margaret Farrell Studio. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association. The voice of real estate.